Life is hard. Those are the exact three words that I used to begin a sermon about six months ago on Psalm 62. And guess what? It's still true. Life is still hard. Trials and temptations, sorrows and struggles, the shame and hurt of being sinned against, the guilt of sinning ourselves, unmet godly desires, spiritual warfare, from little annoyances to devastating tragedies, life is hard. It's true today. It was true six months ago and it was true 2,000 years ago. When James wrote this letter, remember Pastor James wrote this letter shortly after, not too long after Jesus rose from the dead. And do you remember those opening words? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials are part of what it means to live in a broken world. And remember who James is writing to. To the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Right? The original recipients were, of this letter were Christians who had been displaced, removed from their home. They found themselves in foreign territory, a different culture, one where their faith isn't the norm and wasn't celebrated. And James loves these people. He's a good pastor. He knows trials are confronting these brothers and sisters. And they bring a temptation to drift away from the faith. They bring a temptation to to neglect regularly gathering with fellow believers. To decide it's just not worth it. To decide the results of what Christianity gives or doesn't pales in comparison to the immediate pleasures of the world. His concern as you read this letter is that those who say they follow Jesus will water down their faith and compromise their behavior to fit in to the world around them. They might honor Jesus with their lips, but deny him with their hearts and to be comfortable so they fit in. And so what does he do? He writes this letter to encourage beleaguered, weary Vulnerable, confused, tired, tempted Christians. Calling them to remain steadfast, to treasure Christ. James is holding out a picture, what we've called this sermon series, of authentic Christianity. And in this opening chapter, he's, he's essentially asking us, what does authentic Christianity look like when we face trials and temptations? And so this is a consider we too must look at. Uh, While this letter is old, it speaks with clarity and conviction about where we find ourselves today. We too face trials. We too are tempted to drift from our faith. We too are tempted to neglect gathering with the church. We too find ourselves in a culture where it's not the norm to follow Jesus. I am tempted. I'm not above it. And you are too. We're tempted, aren't we? We're tempted to straddle following Jesus in a way that is not so different so we fit in. And James, being the pastor that he is, through the Spirit, gives us these divinely inspired words to call us to something, to someone better. 
Over the last several weeks, we've given our attention to the first 11 verses, and today we'll focus on verses 12 through 15. And here's the main idea. Remain steadfast when temptation comes. That's the call. How? By realizing who is responsible for sin, remembering the result of sin, and looking to the greater reward. Remain steadfast when temptation comes by realizing who is responsible for sin, remembering the result of sin, and looking to the greater reward. That sentence will serve us as we walk through this passage. And I will prepare you. You may have already felt it in the songs we've sang this morning. There is some weight to this passage. There's some weight. And so you might feel uncomfortable as we walk through it, just as I was is in preparing this sermon. But, but our job, beloved, is to take what God's word and says and, and, and give it to us that we might feast. And I trust the weight of the word will make the wonder of where we land all the more astounding. And for my friends here who are not trusting in Christ, I'm thankful that you are here. We believe there's no better place for you to be than on a Sunday morning than right here with us or at another gospel-believing church. And so as we walk through this passage, my guess is it's going gonna, it's gonna to raise some questions in you. That's good. Write those questions down. And then come ask me or ask the person who brought you that you too, it's, it's been my prayer this week that you would see what authentic Christianity is and you would behold the truth and the beauty of the Christ to whom we worship. Let's jump in. Remain steadfast. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Just as James does in verses 2 through 4, this is almost a summary and a restatement of where he begins. And he says, listen, you're going to face trials. And so he calls them to remain steadfast. There's this call to continual, ongoing perseverance and endurance, no matter what they face. And those who do so are called blessed. Notice it doesn't say they will feel blessed. It says blessed is. This is a fact and not a feeling. The idea of blessing here isn't a subjective, fleeting emotion within us. It's an objective position before God. To be blessed, as Scripture speaks of it, is to have the favor of God upon you. To have life itself. And this blessing is lived out. It's not earned. It's lived out as we endure those trials. That's much of what James has been talking about, verses 2 through 11. Letting trials build our faith, so much so that we are a peculiar people and we count our trials as joy. Not because there's something good in the trials themselves, but because of what they produce. And then remember what James said, he's like, when you don't know what to do, ask God for wisdom in whatever situation you find yourself. That's what he's been telling us. James has been teaching us the blessed life is the steadfast life. Unless we forget, he reminds us again in verse 12. So we'll come back to verse 12 in a minute, but for now I want you to see something, how verse 12 serves as a hinge of sorts. So while James has been primarily focusing on trials around us, you'll notice that in verses 13 through 15, he turns his attention to the temptation within us. Remain steadfast when temptation comes. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, 
I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Right at first, this seems like a very abrupt shift, but it's not. James knows that external trials often prompt internal temptations. And he wants his readers, he wants us to not be surprised, but remain steadfast when temptation comes. Right? The beloved, this is us. This is us in our circumstances. There's a temptation to sin. Right? So the, the trial of ongoing marital conflict might bring the temptation of adultery or divorce. The trial of bad news from the doctor might bring the temptation to be bitter toward God. The trial of peer pressure at school brings the temptation to join immoral behavior. The trial of being sinned against by that friend brings the temptation of gossip and slander. The trial of not being picked for the team, rejected by the school, turned down by that job, brings the temptation to doubt your worth. The trial of unanswered prayer brings the temptation to doubt God is good. The trial of being part of this imperfect church brings the temptation to grumble and complain and check out and stop discipling. And like a compassionate and wise pastor, James wants us to connect trials and temptations so we're ready when they come. Did you notice that? Did you notice that in the text? James does not say if. He says when he, when we are tempted. If describes a possibility. When describes a certainty. And look at the beginning of verse 14. But each person is tempted when. Not some people, not the majority of people, not those weak people. Each person is tempted. Though the exact temptations that come our way might be unique to us, temptation itself is universal to all of us. See, maturity in the Christian life is not defined by the absence of temptation. Maturity in the Christian life is defined by the presence of steadfastness in the midst of temptation. So brothers and sisters, I don't want you to think the evil one to to whisper to you something like this. Well, if you really love Jesus, you wouldn't even be tempted right now. But because you are tempted, you must not love Jesus. And because you don't love Jesus, just go ahead and give in. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to equate temptation to actually sinning. But that's not the way God's word talks about temptation. Notice that even in this passage, there is a difference between temptation and sin. Yes, temptation is on the path to sin. But temptation alone is not sin. And we know this why. Who was tempted yet without sin? Jesus. In his human nature, Hebrews 4, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And so I tell you this not so you can minimize temptation. No, it's dangerous as we'll see. But I tell you this to keep the evil one from holding over you a false sense of guilt. I've been a Christian and a pastor long enough to know that most of you are just like me. And we struggle with various temptations. And we contend 
to equate that as sin itself, to have a false sense of shame, of guilt. We have various temptations, right? Some have the ever-present temptation of same-sex attraction. Some are tempted to believe that if you look more like this or more like that, you'd be more valuable. Some are prone to become anxious, others to blow up in anger. Some regularly battle the desire for riches, so you'll seem secure. Others regularly battle the desire for great power or great popularity, so you'll seem important. Some persistently fight the temptation to meet godly desires in an ungodly way. Temptations come at us all, and the list goes on. And what I want you to see, beloved, is on the basis of God's good, holy word, you don't have to have a false sense of guilt. I want to free you from the false shackle upon your soul. Yes, temptation is serious, but it's not necessarily sinful. It depends on what you do with it. And so what do we do? How do we respond? Well, James tells us the first thing we need to do is realize who is responsible for temptation and sin. Who is responsible? He begins by telling us who isn't responsible. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So James has been telling his readers that God divinely designs trials that they might be perfect and complete. Again, this isn't the only thing God is doing in our trials, but it's one of the things he is doing, maturing us. And he knows that trials often bring temptations. And so James, again, is a wise pastor, and he knows, all right, so I've told them this, and they might be tempted to make a wrong calculation. They might be tempted to think God ordains and allows trials. Trials are often the occasion for temptation. Therefore, God is tempting me. But as emphatically and as clearly as possible, James says, no. God is not responsible for temptation. And what does he do? He appeals to the nature of God to tell us why. God cannot be tempted with evil. God is holy and pure. There is nothing in him, in his divine nature, that evil can appeal to. Sin holds no attraction to God. In his divine nature, God is untemptable. And because of that, he does not dangle in front of us what he himself despises. Yes, God ordains trials. Why? That he might build us up. He never ordains temptation to break us down. God's aim is always to help and to bring health to us. It is never to harm us. But we, too often, I believe, are like our father Adam. Remember what he did in the garden? He ate the fruit from the tree, rebelling against God's clear command. God shows up and says, Adam, what have you done? Adam responds, the woman you gave to me, she gave me the fruit and I, Adam's instinct is to blame God. 
We're not so different, are we, sometimes? In the face of temptation, we might think, God is the one who made me like this. God is the one who put me in this situation. So I'm not at fault. But James says, let no one say I am being tempted by God. In fact, James appeals to the character of God. It'd be a wise thing for us to do, beloved. In the midst of temptation, not to blame God, but to remember and to appeal to his character. See, if we believe God is holding out on us, if we believe that God is not good, if we believe that God is not holy and righteous, then it will be easier to blame God and give in to temptation. But if we remember God's character, if we remember who he is, that he's not just a bigger and better version of us, but he's infinitely holy and righteous, he's eternally loving, all wise and utterly sovereign and unfathomable in mercy and grace, then we will believe and trust that his ways are better than our temptations. Your view of who God is will shape how you respond to temptation. Your view of who God is will shape how you respond to temptation. So I encourage you to, to study the character of God. Pick up Knowing God off our bookstall and read it. Or get one of Jen Wilkins' books, None Like Him, and read it with uh, another person. Study the character of God like James does here. So remain steadfast when temptation, com- when temptation comes by realizing who isn't responsible for temptation. God. That leaves the question, who is responsible? I am. You are. We are responsible. James pulls no punches. Look again at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed. How? By his own desire. When temptation comes, it'd be nice to be able to blame God. It'd be nice to be able to blame other people or our circumstances. To to be able to point anywhere but, but here. Yet James places temptation and any resulting sin squarely on our shoulders. He he turns the camera, as it were, to our own hearts. And James knows this is hard. He knows we're not going to like what we hear. So what does he say in verse 16? Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Left to our own natural inclinations, we don't want to believe what James says here. We don't. This week, my mind does what it often does when I'm scheduled to preach. And during those weeks... As I work out or I run, my mind tends to drift toward the passage. I'm, I'm turning it over. I'm trying to discern what it means, how I can faithfully explain it and precisely apply it so I don't waste anybody's time, right? And on those occasions when, when something that I think might be insightful comes to mind, I pull out my iPhone and I write down a note so I don't forget. And this week I noticed something. Almost every time I type the word sin, the phone autocorrect it to son or sim. My phone thought, there's no way you could actually mean sin. 
Maybe you're talking about somebody's son, because you don't have one, or a SIM card for a cell phone. I thought that was a bit ironic, given that Apple's logo could remind us of the first sin. And now they're trying to suggest that maybe we don't talk about it at all. We can do the same thing with our language, can't we? We can excuse or minimize sin by using soft words. For example, I'll put myself on the examining table. I might think things like, I'm not selfish, I'm just strong-willed. I don't lack faith in God. I just like to control absolutely everything. I'm not picky. I'm picky. I'm not ungrateful. Right? So how clever are we? We come up with words like hangry. As if a Snickers bar is going to be the thing that cures the sin in my heart. Think about it. We reduce immorality to a fling. We call adultery a fair. As if it's some event that we go to. We make lying a fib. And we turn gossip into a prayer request. It may make us feel good in the moment. But it reduces our joy in the cross. Because Jesus did not die on the cross. Because I'm grumpy, moody, picky, and high strong. He gave his life on the cross because I'm selfish. I'm angry. I'm prideful. And I'm immoral. That's the uncomfortable truth. The desires tugging away inside of us to do evil are our own. Every sin, beloved, is an inside job. No one can finally blame circumstances, parents, children, genes, God, traffic, or teachers. Now, this is not to minimize that each of us have different dispositions and personalities. It's not to minimize our distinct physical and mental factors that impact us. This is not to dismiss past experiences and upbringing that profoundly shape us. This is not to ignore grievous effects of sin committed against us. All those things shape us, and we'd be wise to know our personality, to think about our backgrounds, to think about our circumstances, and understand how they might make us more prone and susceptible to sin. That'd be wise. But James, in all of Scripture, is clear. None of this is the ultimate root cause. As I've said, as long as I've been a pastor here, The opportunity for is not the cause of. When my wife Paige and I have the privilege of doing premarital counseling, uh, one of our sessions that many of you have been through is on communication and conflict. And you know that in that session, I explain how it's theologically incorrect to tell your spouse, you made me mad. Now, your spouse might have given you a prime opportunity to express your sinful anger. But they didn't make you mad. The anger that comes out was already in there. So think of it like this. 
Think of a water bottle and you put a little dirt in it. You set that bottle on your table for a day, a couple weeks. And soon enough, the dirt settles to the bottom and that water looks crystal clear. You walk over and you shake the bottle. And now the water is muddy and murky. What caused the water to be muddy? It wasn't the shaking. It only exposed the dirt that was already in there. So it is with our own temptation and sin. It exposes what's in our heart. Our circumstances might be the occasion for our sin, but never the cause. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. They defile a person. Everything in the world tells us the problem is outside of us and the solution is inside of each one of us. That's what the world says. It might sound good, but it places a weight upon us we can never carry. And it tends, this frame of mind typically lends itself to pride or despair. So on one hand, if I think the solution is outside and the, the, or the problem is outside and the solution is inside, I can become prideful because I, th- I can think that I'm so good that I can or have fixed myself and I'll necessarily have to look at others who have problems and say, you just must not be as capable as I am. Or it can tend to lead itself to despair because if we fail to fix what we're supposed to be able to in ourselves, We just don't measure up and we're left without hope. But there's good news. The gospel says something entirely different. The gospel says the problem is inside of me and the solution is found outside of me in Christ alone. This is good news because we can rest assured that there's hope no matter what. That we don't have to fix ourselves. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to pretend that we're beyond temptation or of sin or we've we've conquered it all. We can be radically honest because these things don't define us. We can travel to the deepest, darkest recesses of our heart because we have the light and the life of the gospel. James is not saying to hate yourself. Let me be clear about it. He's not saying that. There's something unique about us, precious We are God's image bearers that he loves. James is merely saying, be honest about who's responsible for temptation and sin. I am. You are. We are. That's why Hebrews 3 reminds us, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I need others in my life exhorting and encouraging me. And so do you. Because left alone, we are hardened and deceived by our rebellion. 
This is one of the reasons why we have community groups. This is one of the reasons why we encourage you to pursue discipling relationships. This is one of the reasons why we encourage you to pursue deep, vulnerable friendships. Not just waiting for people to initiate with you, but you going and pursuing and and probing hearts and inviting people into your own life. That together we can be honest about our temptations as we look to the hope of our Savior. Because here's the thing, if we shift the responsibility of our sin, we remove our need for a Savior. If we shift our responsibility of our sin, we remove our need for a Savior. But this is what James wants to do. He wants to lead us to our Savior. He wants to lead us to Jesus, that we might remain steadfast. And so one of the ways we remain steadfast is by remembering or realizing who is responsible for sin. We are. And secondly, by remembering the result of sin. Look again at our text. Pay attention to the imagery of verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James uses two images here to describe the process and result of sin. In verse 14, He uses words and images associated with fishing. So as a fisherman presents the bait and hides the hook to lure a fish out, that he might catch him and drag him out of the water. So it is with temptation playing upon our soul. One of Satan's greatest tricks is to go fishing in our soul. We all have desires. Many of them good, godly desires. But Satan wants to see if we can get to fulfill those desires in a way that is contrary to God's word. So maybe it's the desire to be married. Satan will begin to go fishing in your soul. He might cast a very nice, attractive, kind person in front of you, but it just so happens the person doesn't share your Christian faith. And then he'll try to lure and entice you away. Maybe it's the desire for intimacy. The evil one will begin to present the bait of pornography. He'll entice you with illicit images so that he might sink the hook of shame and guilt in your soul. Maybe it's the desire for justice. Satan will entice you to take matters into your own hand that you might get revenge by harboring bitterness toward that person or that group. Maybe it's the desire for rest. You might be tempted and enticed to travel as much as possible. Tour comes where you gather with the church only when it's comfortable and convenient just for you. Maybe it's the desire to own a home. Satan will lure and entice you, showing you how much everyone else has, so that jealousy and envy and sinful discontent might soon drag you away and make you ungrateful for what you already have. In each of these situations, the bait is presented and the hook is it. And because of that, look at the the result of sin. If you can't tell, I'm preaching to myself this morning. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. 
desires, even good godly desires, give birth to sin. When we ponder, pursue, and seek to possess whatever that desire is in a way that is against God's will. That's what he's talking about. Desires in themselves can be good, but when we begin to ponder, pursue, and seek to possess whatever that is in a way that's contrary to God's will, that's what we just talked about. And what's the next step? Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Notice the progression. Sin grows. It mutates. There is no smut, so there is no thing as a small sin. Uh, we think we can coddle our sin. We like to treat our sin like a pet. We give it a little bit of attention, feed it just a little bit, and then put it back in its cage. That's what we think we can do. But that's not the way sin works. We can't coddle sin. It will kill us or we must kill it. Do you see that? Death is the ultimate result of sin. And some of you think, what do you, what do you, talk, what do you, what do you mean by death? What, what's going on here? I've had that question asked me at least twice this week. Like, what, death? Well, I think that we get an answer. We think about Genesis 2 again. So God tells Adam, Genesis chapter 2, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam eats of the tree, doesn't he? Does he die? Yes, by degrees, as it were. So right first, he and his wife are banished from the garden, out of the presence of God. There's a spiritual death to sin. Then Adam not only blames God, who else does he blame? His wife. There is a relational death that sin brings, and personal, and eventually Adam dies physically. And none of this is the way it's supposed to be. Sin aims to distort and destroy all that God designed to be good. See, sin promises the good life, but it does not deliver. It delivers death. Sometimes by degrees, sometimes more quickly than others, but it always brings forth death. As one person said, sin's advertising agency works better than its manufacturing department. We see a picture of this in Proverbs chapter 5. Listen to these words of a wise father instructing his son. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. You see what's promised? But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Sin looks like sugar, but the moment you bite down, you realize it's actually gravel. We tend to overestimate sin's pleasure and underestimate its pain. As I've said numerous times, Giving into sin is like stepping on a down escalator. One step, and before you know it, you're at the bottom. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequences. Sooner or later, sin is painful, and it brings forth death. Spiritual death, relational death, and eventually physical death. 
And yet, glory be to God, sin does not have the final word. See, as Christ hung upon the cross, he took the pain of sin. He used some of his laugh breaths to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cut off from the fellowship of his father. Death. Deserted by his friends. Betrayed by his closest. Death. Used his last words. It is finished. Then he died physically. Every aspect of sin and death, Christ cast upon himself. He took it upon himself, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, swallowing up sin, swallowing up death, so that all those who would turn from their sin trust in him, that his death becomes ours, his resurrection, our life. See, Christ loves and cherishes you, beloved, when you come to him, so much that he died that you might live with him forever. Brothers and sisters, rejoice This is the good news of the gospel. Sin and shame, temptation do not define you. The evil one has nothing to hold over you. Yes, temptation remains, but it no longer reigns in your soul because the spirit of Christ is living inside of you. The Holy Spirit has taken residence inside of your soul and your desires are becoming new. Your affections are being awakened to the flame of Christ, the white hot glory of the gospel. Look to him. Look to the one who sought you, who bought you and brought you to himself. Don't look at the stain of sin. Don't worry about the eternal grip of death. It is gone, banished through the work, the resurrected Christ. So yes, it's vital that you remain steadfast in the the face of temptation, but it's equally vital that you know where to run when you give in. And you can run to Christ. You can run to the one who's not ashamed of you, who loves you deeply. Would you consider Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, that he might spend eternity with you, beloved? My friends not trusting Christ, would you consider Christ? Would you consider the truth of what James talks about, that where sin leads, death, apart from Christ, eternally separated from God? Would you repent of your sins this morning? Would you turn to Christ? Knowing that he's the only one who can finally and fully defeat sin and death. Again, if you want to talk more about that, come find me. Anybody you've seen up on the stage, the person who brought you. We'd love to talk to you more about that. Remain steadfast when temptation comes. First, by realizing who's responsible for sin. Second, remembering the result of sin. And finally, looking to the greater reward. Back to verse 12. Notice what James does at the end of this verse. How he aims to motivate his people. He wants them to endure. Not just by keeping rules. But by looking to the reward. Do you see what's promised to those who remain steadfast? The crown of life, the text tells us. What is that? I don't think it's a crown of gems and jewels that we get to prance around in. I think James is alluding to what Scripture often alludes to, which is the victor's crown. It's the crown Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians when he's he's finished the race. So we we can think of it just the crown of life, but crowned with life. The prize at the end of life is life, 
true, lasting, eternal life the way it was always meant to be. And James motivates these weary, tired, tempted Christians with the hope of heaven. He wants to motivate present obedience in the midst of trials with a view of future glorious grace. And notice who this reward is promised to, to those who love him. This trial's not for everyone. It's for those who love Jesus. James is after not just our endurance, but our affection. Do you see that? Remaining steadfast comes not just from trying hard, but from treasuring Jesus. That's where it comes from. So James is saying, listen, don't just say no to sin. Say yes to someone better. That's what he's aiming to do. But you're like, well, how, how can I say yes in love from the heart when you just told me the heart was my problem? How do we do that? We love because he first loved us. In love, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, God initiate and God pursues. As you'll see next week, it is of his own will God brings forth his children. He gives us new affections. He gives us a new heart. He gives us new life. And we respond by grace in faith, prizing Christ above all things. It's not a work of our own. It's entirely and wholly of God that we come to him and we say, I love you because you first loved me. And so he's saying, yes, look at the sin in your heart, but even more, look at the Savior who lives. Look to heaven, the Savior who lives and loves and who is one day returning soon to restore the world back to the way it's supposed to be. And when you see him, he's so glorious and powerful and beautiful that you'll be changed into his likeness. Imagine this, brothers and sisters. As we think about remaining steadfast, I don't want to leave you with rules. I want to leave you with the reward, Christ himself. In the midst of temptations, let your imagination and your affections be captured by what's just ahead. In heaven, crowned with life. Perfect communion and intimate fellowship with God and one another. No more temptations tugging at your soul. Every relationship embraced without tension or awkwardness. No friendship will ever be damaged by sin. No more worrying about disease. No more mourning losses by death. No more shame of feeling unclean because of what's been done to you. No more battling pride and bitterness. Fear and abuse forever gone. Racism and injustice eradicated. Physical health in prime condition. Think about that. Waking up, no more aching backs, no more stub toes, just perfect physical health. Mind, soul, body, perfect Thought life, desires, motivations, absolutely pure. Every action and interaction, good and holy and righteous. That's amazing. No more ambulances. Only bliss and happiness, joy, wonder of unhindered worship. Worshiping with every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Imagine this. Imagine the creative explosion of what it will be to enjoy the uniqueness and the beauty of every ethnicity across the globe. Imagine those dinners. Imagine those conversations. Imagine those friendships. Even creation itself will be restored. You'll be able to experience everything. Every joy will be fully grown, no longer diminished by brokenness, no longer distorted by sinfulness. Taste buds experiencing what you could never dream right now. 
Your eyes beholding beauties never imagined. Your body experiencing pleasures never fathomed. I don't know what the fullness of the reward will be like. But I know this. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. Life's hard. And we need each other. We're fellow pilgrims. We're fellow sojourners. This world as it is, is in our home. And that's why James is calling us to remain steadfast. Soon enough, beloved. Soon enough, every desire you have will be fulfilled. Your joy, beloved, will ever be increasing as you look at Christ. This is what God has promised to those who love him. And we get to remind each other of the reward that's just ahead. It's what we get to do. We get to remind each other it's worth it. Not to give up, not to give in, but to remain steadfast as we look to the greater reward, Christ himself. Let's pray. God, you know how much I need this truth. And I trust others do too. We're so thankful that your word does not pull any punches, that it is weighty, that it might awaken wonder in us. So would you help us be both honest and hopeful, realistic and optimistic, that we might travel in such a way we remain steadfast that we would behold Jesus and that because of that we would always remember the result of our sin but that he took that for all that would come to him would you help us cultivate imagination and affection for the greater reward the crown of life life as it was always meant to be do this we ask for the glory of Christ for the good of your people we need your help O oh lord Give us grace upon grace, we pray. Amen.